Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Today's program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, April 17th, 2021. Right now it is Wednesday morning, and once again we have our friend Truthfids here to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 35 of this series of presentations. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Over the past few weeks, or the past few segments in this series, we discussed the racial aspects of the messages of the apostles found in 2 Peter chapter 2 and in the epistle of Jude. In those chapters, we believe it is quite clear in the context of their remarks that the apostles had described a different race of people, men who could not have been of Israel because they were born into corruption and destruction, men who had surreptitiously infiltrated the body of the people of God and corrupted it with false teachings. Both apostles also warned that in their own time, as well as in the future, men connected with those same intruders of old were infiltrating Christian assemblies or would infiltrate Christian assemblies and act in that same manner. Now we shall endeavor to show that the Apostle John had described these same men in different ways something which Paul of Tarsus had also done. Truth is, thank you for joining us once again. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so we're on to John, and we're going to see that he basically has the exact same view as Paul and the other apostles, and uh, he's just essentially describing it in a slightly different way. They all gave slightly different descriptions, but it's all the same thing. And, and when you put it all together, you, you're going to get the same picture, as you just said, of these infiltrators who are corrupt in Christianity, essentially. And also, as we also explained before, that there's not a single Antichrist, that there's a whole race of Antichrists. And they're Antichrists because they're against Christianity. They infiltrate and gradually corrupt it that way very sneakily. And they're our ultimate enemy uh, back then and still today. Right, Bill? Well, well right. And they're against Christianity and, and they are against God for reason of the circumstances of their birth, of their race. What, which is what both um, Peter and John have stated explicitly, as, as we will see here this evening, as, as we've already seen with Second Peter. And, and John, even though he, most of his language is, is unique compared to the language of Peter, Jude, and Paul. In this regard, as we've already discussed, the epistle of Jude and the second epistle of Peter use much of the same language while they have enough of a divergence that they were clearly not copying from one another. They were both repeating something else that they had learned elsewhere, either from Christ or elsewhere in scripture, in, in that 
writing of Enoch that Jude actually cited or, or something similar? Well, well, Paul's language is quite different, and we discussed that in, in relation to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where John, Paul's language is quite different than John or Peter and Jude, and, and John's language is also quite different, yet even though they use these different terms and different ways to explain that this race of interlopers, intruders, infiltrators, who are false brethren, right, that they still complement one another because there are absolute parallels within each of their descriptions, as we shall see here in, in um especially in 1 John chapter 2, which is the subject of our discussion this evening. And, and next in our next presentation, we will get into 1 John chapter 3 and, and beyond that, I pray. So I had hoped to get this all into one presentation originally, but it just couldn't happen. And, and it would have been another presentation. It would have been far too long. It would have been well over three hours, I think, right? I, I never really know how long these are going to take until we actually do them. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. No, that's fine. A, a long presentation and then a medium one, right? <laughs> Back and forth. Well, well, right. I mean, they're inconsistent, but that's simply because we, what, when these are prepared. I have no idea of the digressions we're going to take. And, and I, I basically only have four or 5,000 words in front of me. And sometimes I'd bet we probably run between us 10 or 12,000 words, at least in those three hour presentations, but that's okay. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but we can't possibly plan these to be cut and dried. Um, at, at a predetermined length of time. I mean, I'm not trying to mimic the mainstream media. That's not my purpose here. And, and we should, yeah. I know when you condense these for your videos, then, then you have a challenge of getting it down into a few minutes. <sighs> Hopefully there's enough um, material and, and definite, definite, easy to demonstrate proofs that allow you to pick and choose and, and get the point across that that's, yeah, your yeah, that's exactly what I try to do. And, and like these, I just, uh, I don't set a predetermined, you know, it's going to be five or 10 minutes, just uh, as long as it's explained. Some of the proofs are five, some are like 20 and that's just how it is. Right. Right. That's, yeah, wait till you get to proof 45, which went for five weeks. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's your challenge. <laughs> I Bill, I just funny. had a slight um, question. When does, uh, because this is all about Satan, the same people, when does the actual word Satan first appear in, in the Bible? Is it in Job or is it even before that? It's, well, well. Historically, that would be when Judah went uh, into their land and they're close to uh, the Edomites, right? And they would be infiltrating amongst them. 
Yes. And historically, what we first see a reference to that Satan, which I believe was a person and not a spirit floating around on the earth, that, that Satan in Job chapter 1 would be the first historical reference in English of Satan as an adversary that would not be a candidate for conversion. That That's in Job chapter 1, verse 6. In um, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, that there's an account that also appears in Samuel, but it's described differently in 1 Chronicles, and, and Satan stood up against Israel. That that word simply means adversary. So that should probably be, it, it probably should have been translated that way at all times, but it wasn't, so that's unfortunate. It should have been translated simply as adversary. And if the word was translated, we would have a, a much more historically accurate view of scripture, I believe, that, than imagining that Satan is a single supernatural spirit with powers that rival those of God. And, and that's not Satan. <laughs> that, that's just the figment of the imaginations of men. The, the word Satan first appears in Hebrew in Genesis chapter 3, I believe, if this isn't, um, no, that's a form of the word that I would have to study a little more deeply. I'm not getting a good, a good view of it here. I think Bible works is screwing me around, but the that the 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 word Satan in Hebrew or Satan it does appear earlier in Scripture, in earlier than Job. I believe Job was written during the Judges period. I could establish that it's not the earliest book of the Bible, as earlier Christian identity pastors and as many. Um, denominational pastors believe it certainly is not the earliest book of the Bible. It can be proven that it was at least as late as the Judges period, and perhaps even in, in the early kingdom. It's it's hard to pin down precisely, but it was not older than that, and it was not older than the time of Joshua or Moses. Job was definitely written after the time of Moses and Joshua. That can be established with without a doubt from internal evidence in the book of Job. So, and and with more than one witness. So that's that that word Satan appears a little earlier in scripture, but it just describes an enemy or an adversary. It it's not exactly clear from the Hebrew form of the word, I, I would have to do a fuller word study to examine exactly how and where it appeared. But it just means enemy or adversary. And even Abraham had enemies and adversaries, right? Or opposition. 
I hope that answers the question, but I know that it's still kind of open. Yeah, yeah, that you can see it's always tied to that racer cane generally. But but of course, if you're playing a game of chess, your opponent would be your, your Satan, your adversary as well. Yes, I'm going to. OK, I'm looking at Exodus is a different word for enemy. That's Oyeb. Sometimes it is Satan. I would have to do the a Egyptians would be the adversary in, in that events right well well uh, i mean or or the enemy yes exodus chapter 15 exodus chapter 23 i will be an enemy unto thine enemies but that's a different word that's a different hebrew word that there are a couple of different hebrew words translated in that manner adversaries there's a different words translated as adversaries. So, yeah, to, to, to do the full word study, we'd probably have to sit here for a while, and it would not be exciting at all. Psalm chapter 30, the word Satan is translated adversaries. David speaking about his personal adversaries. So I'm sure it's probably Psalm 3820. I'm sure it's probably translated a few different ways. It, it's adversary five times in the King James and resist on one occasion, allegedly, according to Liddellen, according to Brown Driver Briggs in, in the Bible Works software. So... Satan is resist, but not until rather late in, in the history of Scripture, in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. It should probably be oppose. Would have been a better translation, I believe. Okay. That should be enough of that, I hope. The, the nature of the Antichrist, according to the racial message of the Apostle John... And in our current list of proofs, this is number 50. This is the halfway point, finally. I don't know if you have anything to comment on that. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm on to proof eight in video form. So I'm, I'm gradually, well, I wouldn't say I'm catching up, but <laughs> I'm trying to uh, keep up at least, you know, with the videos. And then what, once I get to proof 10, I could go back, put them all together and touch them up a bit. And then uh, I'll upload them on the Christogenia site as well, so people can just download it easily. Wonderful. That sounds great. And and maybe you could finish this before the end comes. <laughs> before twenty. <20. laughs> at, at least before the decade, the end of the decade comes. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. In our long discussion of proof number forty-five. And the mistranslations or misunderstandings found in the epistles of Paul. We presented Paul's view of Satan as it is described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And here I will present the relevant passage from that chapter from the Christogenia New Testament because of the 
and and I discussed this, of course, when we discussed the, the mistranslations here. The King James Version had obfuscated the meaning, obscured the meaning by ambiguously translating the tense of the verbs where Paul was using the present tense. So that they tried to um, render this so that Paul was talking about some son of destruction or some Satan, some wicked entity far off in the future. And, and Paul was really talking about his own present time. So from verse three of that chapter, you should not be deceived by anyone in any way because if apostasy had not come first, in other words, apostasy had already been on in, in the world and in Judea before the time of Christ, if apostasy had not come first and the man of lawlessness been revealed. So the man of lawlessness was, or Satan as the denominational Christians would identify that had already been revealed. And that must be by the gospel of Christ, the son of destruction. Now, Paul likened the Edomites to vessels of destruction in Romans chapter 9. He who is opposing, present tense, and exalting himself, present tense, above everything said to be a god or an object of worship. And so, he is seated in the temple of, of Yahweh, or the temple of God, present tense, representing himself that he is a God, present tense. Paul used the present tense throughout that, that those um, two verses, except where he said, if apostasy had not come first and the man of lawlessness been revealed, which are past tense verbs. Do you not remember that yet being with you, I told you these things and you know that which now prevails, that entity that prevails in the present tense, for him to be revealed in his own time. Now, I'm going to comment on that shortly. For the mystery of lawlessness is already operating, present tense, he prevailing only presently. That's a present tense verb and an explicit statement that this is happening presently as Paul is writing this epistle to the Thessalonians from Corinth. It's very clear he wrote this from Corinth, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, at a, the time when he was in Corinth during the 18 months of his ministry there, which is explained in the book of Acts, I think in chapter 17. And because of the historical background and the council at the, the governor at Corinth who is mentioned by Paul, I think it's Gallio or something like that, in, in that's mentioned by Luke in that chapter. Acts chapter 18, Gallio was the deputy of Achaia. That Gallio, the time of his rule can actually, through historical 
documents that had been discovered in archaeology to, to about 50 to 52 AD. So that's when Paul is writing this, and he's speaking about the present tense, he prevailing only presently, meaning at Paul's time, in the temple of God, until he should be out of the way. And then will the lawless be revealed. And there, Paul is talking about something that will happen in the future, but he's already said that the lawless, the man of lawlessness, had been revealed. And that must be in the gospel of Christ, whom Prince Joshua will destroy with the breath of his mouth and abolish at the manifestation of his presence. So what we have here is Paul describing an entity that's already been revealed. If Christians would only accept the gospel, we would know who the man of lawlessness is. But he can't be taken out of the way as a matter of prophecy until the coming of Christ, the manifestation of his presence. Discussing this passage in part 30 of these presentations, upon explaining the mistranslations of the King James Version, we elucidated the fact that Paul was speaking of men who were living and ruling in the temple at Jerusalem in his own time. Men who were ostensibly Edomites and not Israelites, which can be further demonstrated from the Gospels and from Paul's other epistles. It is also evident that Paul, in spite of his explaining these, that this phenomenon in this manner and others in his other epistles, he understood that while these Edomite Jews who opposed God were operating in his time, they would not be fully revealed until some future time. They are Satan, a word which simply means adversary in Hebrew. And it is those same terms upon which they were, by which they were identified by Christ. So we have to, we have an obligation to see what Paul was talking about. And as we read this epistle of John, and as we've already read Second Peter and Jude, we saw descriptions of men, and we shall see them here. In Peter and in Jude, we saw descriptions of men who had been condemned in ancient times, who were associated with fallen angels, with Sodom and the sin of fornication, but who were able to infiltrate the body of the people of God and feast and thrive among them. These men were described as outsiders, as interlopers and intruders, or intruders, I should say, and, and as being destined for destruction, regardless of their apparent fellowship with Christians. In any event, in these epistles of Paul, Peter, and Jude, it is clear that these men are not of the race of Israel and that there is no possible way by which they may be accepted by Christ. 
Now we shall see yet another description of these same men, but which employs completely different terms in the epistles of John. So once again, here we shall follow the King James Version, discussing any places where we must correct the translation and explaining our reasons for doing so. So, so these people, that they've always been there, but we was never able to reveal them uh, and, until Christ with his uh, gospel. That that's, it, that's essentially what Paul means as well, right? Well, absolutely. I believe so. They, they were revealed in Christ. They were always there. That they were, that they were um, and I believe we, we touched on this last week, because of the sin of Judah first. And we're going to discuss this at greater length in our next proof when we discuss the corrupted priesthood. Because of the sin of Judah, these Canaanites were always present within the tribe of Judah in the form of the descendants of Shelah, his Canaanite son. But we see in the Old Testament that Pharez and Zarah were the legitimate sons. And the elder of them, it was important to, to record the elder of them for the purpose that they would receive the inheritance, not Shema. So that's the story of the, the um, scarlet thread, right? <laughs> Which was put on the wrist of Zara, but Pharez had, had emerged from the womb first. So Pharez and the descendants of Pharez became the kings of Israel in Palestine because the scepter belonged to Judah. So Shelah was never even considered for that scepter, that inheritance, that aspect of, of Judah's right as a son he was no longer he was not even considered because he was not legitimate his mother having been a racial canaanite there may have been other people in scripture that were called canaanites simply because they lived in the land of canaan but judah's wife was singled out she was a racial canaanite so for that reason Pharez received the, the the throne but and and the rights of the firstborn son but the shelahites were there nevertheless they were not exterminated and and in in the overall scheme of things yahweh knew long in advance that all of this was going to happen he actually planned on it happening he knew what judah was going to do just like he knew what esau was going to do. Yahweh had mercy on Judah, but he had no mercy on Esau. Evidently, on account of the promises which were made to the fathers, to Isaac and to Jacob, did Yahweh have mercy on Judah, which is an example of, of, of his mercy in keeping his promises, even when we don't deserve to be the recipients of that mercy. We still get it on account of the, we, we still receive that mercy on account of the promises which he made to our forefathers. 
So that Canaanite element was always manifest within a portion of the tribe of Judah. And we learn in Second Chronicles chapter 2 that there were Kenites in Judah and, and as the scribes in Jerusalem. And, and we learn in Isaiah, I'm sorry, in Ezekiel chapter 16, that there were um, Hittite and Canaanite elements that had in, infiltrated Judah where, where Ezekiel uses sort of... Um, poetic allegory and and Yahweh through the prophet says to the people of Jerusalem that your your mother was a Hittite and and we understand that the Hittites were a branch of the Canaanites that then we have Jeremiah chapter 2 what where we have the um comparisons much like those of Jude and Peter of the sins of the people of Judah and Jerusalem as the and Israel overall as race mixing being a pleasant plant that was planted which became a strange vine and people who bore that sin that could not be washed off no matter how much soap they used and also the fact that they hewed them out broken cisterns that can hold no water where Peter and Jude both likened these same infiltrators to clouds without water. What's a cloud without water? Every cloud. A cloud is a combination of dust and water. Otherwise, and, and, and when it precipitates, it, it, the water falls to the ground, but it's vapor in the cloud. So, so a cloud is essentially water. What's a cloud without water? It's nothing but dust. It has no spirit. It's missing a com an important component. So is a broken cistern that cannot hold water. So all of these allegories used by these apostles were used for a particular reason to get us to consider the meanings of the same allegories where they appear in the Old Testament and to explain to us that this modern phenomenon is nothing new, that this is the same phenomenon which had happened in ancient times. And um, with, with Christ's gospel, they'll naturally expose themselves and try to prevent it, as, as uh, Paul kept saying, right, that they keep following him and try to prevent the spread. And, and that's how he knows, oh, you're, you're an Edomite or a Hittite or a Canaanite, right? Absolutely. And, and it's his gospel which is supposed to separate the wheat from the tares if Christians would only believe it. And, and we'll get to that later, especially when we discuss a couple of verses in Second in John, that the apostles warned us, but we still accept these people. We still accept these people. Today, they're, they're ruling over all of our nations again, just like they came to rule Judea, just like at, at least some of them at various times came to assert um, great influence and even authority over Rome. And, and we, we can't prove it, but may have even become emperors. It's said that Nero's wife, 
Papahia, his second wife, or third or fourth or fifth, who, who knows, because he even married a, a man at one time, had, had, had been a Jewess and corrupted Nero. Who knows? That these people have infiltrated among us and we can't tell them apart. It's the gospel of Christ that we're told is the method by which to tell them apart. And, and we have to accept that. But they have to hear, we have to hear the true gospel of Christ, which incorporates this message. That there are actual people that came from the devil and there are actual people that came from God. <laughs> and that, that devil is, is more a more complex subject than simply some evil spirit floating in heaven. Some evil spirit floating in heaven didn't create anything. What that devil is, is more complex than that. That devil is also collective for an entire race of corrupted people, people that were corrupted at a very early time in history, even before the creation of Adam. That serpent that was already present in the garden was not a snake. Okay, that's another long digression. But if you don't understand all these things, you'll never put it all together. And you'll never see the consistency of it all, when indeed it is consistent. So now we're going to see another description of these same men, but of course John uses entirely different terms to describe this entity, this phenomenon, as opposed to Peter, Jude, and, and Paul. This is in fact the only place where we see the word Antichrist in Scripture, is in the first and second epistles of John. I think it's four or five times here in the first epistle, and once in the second, sometimes in the singular, sometimes in the plural. So we're going to discuss 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, just to get some background on this epistle. Opening his epistle, John described the fact that he had witnessed the ministry of Christ, and he described aspects of its purpose using very poetic language. Then, from the perspective of our purpose here, he made two interesting statements where he had said in the first chapter, in verse 8, that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, Paul, speaking of the children of Israel, had, had proclaimed that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in that same epistle, and I believe in the same chapter, he said, let God be true and every man a liar. Paul is teaching that there's no difference between what the substance of what Paul is teaching and the substance of what John taught it's just all expressed in different ways using usually or at least very frequently using different terms. So, while these statements prove nothing by themselves, they do evoke the attitude of the ungodly Pharisee 
in a parable given by Christ in Luke chapter 18, where we read, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. So here we have a self-righteous bastard, right? Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, Christ describing a Pharisee and a publican or tax collector as going to the temple and praying at the same time. So the Pharisee goes on, his portrayed is going on to say, I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. So the Pharisee was self-righteous. But because the, public, <clears throat> the publican to whom the Pharisee was being compared was humble and admitted his sin, even though publicans were among the most despised of men, the publican was accepted above the Pharisee, who only justified himself while pretending not to have sinned. And, and we see that same attitude projected in, in these Edomite Jews all throughout the gospel, all throughout the New Testament, justifying themselves and pretending not to have sinned. So moving on to 1 John chapter 2, which we're going to discuss here at length. In these opening verses of this chapter, the apostle professes that sin does not separate the children of God from Christ, where he says, my little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world or society. But that doesn't even mean that everybody on the planet sins because, as John himself says later in this epistle, sin is violation of the law, transgression of the law. Only the children of Israel had the law. So only the children of Israel could sin. Yet we could show that by saying the whole world, John referred only to the children of Israel. That's another digression that would be far too long to take here and now. So we see that if we sin, we meaning Christians, we have a propitiation in Christ. This leaves open the question of those whom Jude had described as spots in your feasts of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withers without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the darkness, the blackness of darkness forever. Murderers, complainers, walking after their own lusts. Now, if they are found feasting together with Christians who were told to come out from the world or society, 
then they themselves must profess to be Christians, as those same epistles of the apostles also imply, lest they would not be able to infiltrate Christian assemblies in the first place. Yeah, how could a Christian uh, infiltrate a Christian, right? Or right. a Christian assembly? It, it doesn't exactly. make sense unless it's a race-based aspect. Exactly. It makes no sense at all unless it's talking about their race for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. No chance to repent and turn to Jesus. They're already sitting in a Christian assembly and corrupting it with their sins, with their sinful nature. It's, this is only explained, understanding that this is describing a race of people who are not qualified to be Christians, but who infiltrate Christian assemblies. There's no other way that this is comprehensible. So from there, we go on to verses 4 and 5. We're not going to discuss every verse of 1 John chapter 2 here. This isn't the commentary on 1 John chapter 2. This is an illustration of the racial message within 1 John chapter 2 that will continue in chapter 3 next week or in our next presentation. So now, after John explains that to know and love Christ is to keep the commandments of the law, he describes true love for God as both keeping the commandments, as Christ had also explained in the Gospel of John. So, and, and, and loving one's brother, which somehow escaped the notes. So, he describes true love for God as both keeping the commandments and loving one's brother as Christ had also explained in the Gospel of John. And, and I'm referring to John chapters 14 and 15 explicitly, where, where Christ had said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, then I will love you, and I and my Father will come and dwell with you. So we see that, and, and then we see him say, and... A new commandment I give to you, I believe that he called it a new commandment, even though it is in the law, right? In John chapter 13, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. Now, that's not really a new commandment, because... It is in the, in the scriptures in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19. So the concept was in the Old Testament, right? And in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, I'm sorry. So verses 17 and 18, thou shalt not hate thy brother, in thine heart, thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. So 
We see that in Leviticus. But it's not repeated anywhere else. And it's not part of the Ten Commandments. And it's not in Deuteronomy. Leviticus being the priestly law, Deuteronomy being the copy of the law, it is actually what it most likely means, the copy of the law which was read to the people. There are laws in Leviticus that only apply to priests, and it, it could be argued it, it's that the argument is twofold. The legalist might claim that it's only for the priests, but I see Leviticus as the higher goal which all Israelites, which all of the children of God should aspire to because we are a kingdom of priests. We are all supposed to be servants of God. So we must keep the laws in Deuteronomy. But if we really want to please God, whether we're priests or not, we should all strive to keep the laws in Leviticus, right? That's the way I see that in the Old Testament context. But, of course, the legalists, there was a reason why Christ had to call this a new commandment, because it wasn't being taught to the apostles. When they, before they were apostles, before the coming of Christ, when they were just average Israelites who were fishermen, who were not learned, and who were sitting in the synagogues on the Sabbath days, hearing the law from the Pharisees from the Levitical priests of the time. So this commandment must have been new to them, even though it's right there in Leviticus chapters 18. So that's why I see that. So even John said it's not really a new commandment, as we may see here in, in his first epistle. So we read in 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he that saith, I know him, and keep, keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. So that word includes keeping my commandments and loving one's brother. That's how the gospel divides the wheat and the tares because the tares can't possibly love us. And they don't. They, that they consistently strive to bring in false doctrines and destroy us with those false doctrines. Liberty, equality, fraternity, egalitarianism leads to universalism and diversity. What are they doing? They're destroying the sheep with false doctrines by bringing in pigs, goats, dogs, monkeys, Chinamen, Negroes, squat monsters. It, it's that they, it, this is a very ancient phenomenon that sadly Christians today still don't understand. Then John explains that not only must we keep the commandments, but also love our brethren, which Christ had demanded in the Gospel of John, as we just read or just referred to at least. So we read further. He that saith he is in light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. 
He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness, and knows not where he goes, because that darkness has blinded his eyes. They try to make that brethren uh, all races, right? <laughs> or anyone who claims to be Christian. But, but he's really talking racial there, isn't he? Well, absolutely, he's talking racial, that, that he's talking about a race of people, that word neighbor in Leviticus, where the first commandment is to love thy neighbor, is defined. And, and yet, you know, these Baptists, I've heard Baptists argue this, that the first occurrence of a word in Scripture is what defines the, the term. So we see the word neighbor in Exodus. It appears about a dozen times in Exodus. But it always refers to the relationship between two Israelites in every instance. And an Egyptian is not the neighbor of the Israelite. In fact, in the book of Acts, where that account of Moses was described in Acts chapter 7, we see that um, Moses had killed the Egyptian. And the Egyptian, even though they were all living together in Egypt, the Egyptian was not considered a neighbor to Moses or to the two Hebrews described in Acts chapter 7. And this is a description of an event which occurred in Exodus. The two Israelites who were fighting with one another were described as neighbors in relation to one another. But the Egyptian wasn't described as a neighbor. And Moses killed the Egyptian. Moses killed the Egyptian and was not accounted as having done anything wrong. But Moses tried to get these two Israelites to stop fighting with one another. Because they were fighting with one another, they were seen as doing wrong. So our idea of a neighbor, and they were described as neighbors in relation to one another, but the Egyptian wasn't a neighbor. He was never called a neighbor. And Moses was never condemned for killing him. Killing him, he showed love for his own people over the Egyptian. And we wonder why Moses was chosen for the role that he would later fill. That's why. That's the model of why he was chosen to do what he did because he loved his people more than the Egyptians, even though he himself was raised as a prince in Egypt, as Paul explains in Hebrews. So Moses was a racist. It's very clear. And he was rewarded for being a racist. Where the first law concerning neighbor is given in the law in the commandments we see leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 exodus is the first example 
Leviticus is the first law. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Right there in the law, a neighbor is defined as being one of the children of thy people. Period. That's a neighbor. There's nowhere else that we have to look to see what a neighbor is. It's one of the children of thy people, not somebody else's people. And when we go and examine the Hebrew word translated as neighbor, it's rooted in a word which refers to sheep of the same flock being raised up and nourished together. That's the root of the root meaning of that Hebrew word for neighbor, reah. That's what it refers back to. Sheep of the same flock that were raised together, that were nourished together and fed together. So should sheep in a flock eat together with wolves? That's the basic question here. Or with dogs? Of course not. Of course they shouldn't. But even ancient shepherds sometimes kept sheep and goats together. And that's why Christ obviously used sheep and goats in his parable of all the nations. That all the sheep would go into the kingdom of heaven in the end. But all the goats would go into the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So I know that's a digression, but I felt that it had to be, that summary had to be given. Because it's the same phenomenon that John is writing about here. So, moving on to 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. John explains why he is writing these things to his readers. I write unto you, little children. He's calling all of his readers little children because they're all children of God, regardless of their age. But he also mentions them as fathers and, and young men. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Not for the sake of the sinner, but because God promised to forgive their sins. And he keeps his promises. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. In other words, they have known God. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. And we'll discuss that term, the wicked one, more in first john chapter three so i'm just going to put that on the burner until then on the back burner until then i write unto you little children because you have known the father i have written unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning i have written unto you young men because you are strong and the word of god abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one second time goes on the back burner till next week these words evoke a statement by Christ found in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 7. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, 
and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works, then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Christ must be talking about that same race of intruders, of infiltrators. Mere belief does not make one a child of God. But according to those words of Christ, a pre-existing relationship is necessary to be a child of God, as he rejects men who profess to believe him on the basis that I never knew you. That pre-existing relationship is often described in the words of the prophets, but most succinctly in Amos chapter 3, where the word of God says to the children of Israel, Hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? John is telling his readers here that they knew God. But it is also important and even more important that God knew them. And that's a huge difference. Anybody could claim to know God, but not anybody can claim that God knows them. If you're not a child of Israel, God denies knowing you. You could come into the Christian assembly and claim to do great works in his name and prophecy in his name. If you're not one of the ch children of Israel, get away from me. I never knew you. Only the children of Israel were called to walk together with God, which we see in a promise of reconciliation found in the closing verses of Hosea. And the last verse of Hosea reads, Who is wise, and he shall understand these things, prudent, and he shall know them, for the ways of Yahweh are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. The transgressors cannot be mere sinners, as John repeated the promise in Christ of propitiation to sinners here in this chapter. Rather, the transgressors are those men who were condemned from of old. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, he's saying that um, basically all our sins are white because of the promise uh, that essentially only it applies to us, right? The Israelites. Right. And that he's not going to wipe the racial sin away from uh, all these bastards, right? Absolutely not. A bastard sh shall not enter the congregation of, of the Lord. And it says to the 10th generation, but then it mean, it says nay, even forever. Because what's a bastard in the 10th generation but a bastard? So let's start over counting again, because <laughs> his first child is a bastard. That's one. It, it, it's, it's infinite. It, it really means that to the 10th generation, a bastard to the 10th generation is always going to be a bastard. You can't breed the bastard out of a bastard.
so that's really an idiom which means for infinity or nay even forever moving on to first john chapter 2 verse 18 after john encourages his readers to love not the world in the ensuing passages and warns that the world and its lust shall come to pass he warns them further on in chapter 2 of this epistle in verse 18 little children it is the last time and as you have heard that antichrist shall come even now there are many antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time now here we have a contention that was the King James Version. Here we have a contention with the translation of two verbs rendered, shall come, as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come. We have a contention with those words, shall come. And there are, in the phrase, even now, are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. So we have a contention with those two verbs translated shall come and there are in the King James translation of this passage, or actually shall come and are there. But that is interpreting the verb to mean there are, as we say in modern English, right? In the phrase, the Antichrist shall come, which is hoti antichristos erkatahi, that verb erkatahi is rendered as a future verb in that phrase, shall come. But it is actually a present tense active third person singular form of the verb erkomahi, which is to come, or in the form of erkomahi, it is actually I come. So erkatahi is the present tense third person singular which is he, she, or it comes. Here it is, he comes, and not he shall come. That would be the future tense. But here it's in the present tense. So that creates a lie. That is a lie. The King James translators lied when they took a present tense verb and translated it in the future tense. They lied. More significantly, the phrase there are or are there had been translated from a perfect active third person plural verb form of the Greek verb ginomahi. Ginomahi is to be or to become in its radical form. We'll discuss that shortly. <clears throat> the phrase there are is in the present tense. There are or are there is a present tense statement. It's a present tense phrase. But the perfect active verb form describes an action which these antichrists must have already completed in the past. It's a perfect verb. It's not a present tense verb. The verb ginomahi of people 
Liddell and Scott attest that it means in its most radical or most fundamental most fundamental sense because the radical use of a word in grammar refers to its most fundamental meaning of people in its radical sense means to come into being of persons to be born because of persons to come into being means to be born so speaking of living people but using the verb in the perfect tense here which is the past tense the action is already fully completed john can only be using it in that very manner therefore we must translate the clause to read even now many antichrists have been born the king james version is patently dishonest they created two great lies when they translated this verse so once it is recognized that these men were born antichrists which is what john had stated then we see john is explaining a phenomenon that christ himself had explained in john chapter 10 where he told his adversaries but you believe not because you are not of my sheep as i said unto you there christ clearly informed his adversaries that they could not believe him because they were not of his people what else could john mean where he says that many antichrists have come perfect tense into being have been born have come into being okay of people the only way to come into being is to be born he didn't say that they become antichrists he said they are antichrists which have come into being there's a huge difference there you might be born an israelite and you might run off to any modern western university and you might become an antichrist marxist that rejects god but you have a propitiation for your sins according to john first john chapter 2 in its opening verses we have a propitiation for our sins because all the seed of israel will be saved because christ came to forgive all the sins of israel in all the places whereby they have sinned against him as he promised in jeremiah if john had wanted to explain that people become antichrists then he could have said that even now many people have become antichrists but instead he said many antichrists have come into being and speaking of people <laughs> that verb means to be born it doesn't mean to be educated or to somehow be converted to something that you that's different than what you once were 
further yeah, the, away. Uh, the translation really dilutes what they're trying to say, right? That the born really makes you think, hang on, that there are people being born this way. And, and it must be a racial aspect, right? Yes. When you understand the truth. Absolutely. And, and further on, other language in this epistle of John will help to clarify that this is indeed what he meant here. As he also said in that statement, referring to Christ in John chapter 10, verse 26, but you believe not because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you, he had indeed explained that to them earlier, as I said unto you, past tense, right? He explained that to them earlier, but in a different way in John chapter 8. There, while he had admitted that they were of the seed of Abraham, he had also asserted that Abraham was not their father and God was not their father. And he told them that Cain, the first murderer, the murderer from the beginning, was their father. So the only way that all four conditions could have been literally true is if they were descendants of Esau in the historical context of ancient Judea. The only way that all four conditions could be true is if they were descendants of Esau and not of Jacob. And therefore, they were bastards rather than having been Abraham's true children, which came through the seed of Jacob. In Romans chapter 9, Paul's lengthy explanation as to why not all of those of Israel were of Israel also elucidates the fact that those who rejected Christ were of the children of Esau, while attesting that he had prayed only for his kinsmen according to the flesh who had not yet received the gospel. So Paul's, if Paul's telling us that not all of those of Israel are of Israel, and if Paul's praying only for his kinsmen according to the flesh, those who are Israel, as he also says, right after that, and he goes on to compare Jacob and Esau, then we can only imagine that those who are not Israel in Israel, those who are not his kinsmen according to the flesh, are Edomites from Esau, because Paul went on to, to compare Jacob and Esau and contrast them as vessels of mercy and vessels of destruction. And when we open the pages of Flavius Josephus and study the history of the time, it's absolutely clear that most of these people in Roman Judea were Edomites and not Israelites. Then we have all this talk of infiltrators in the epistles of Jude and Peter and antichrists here in the epistle of John. And they're all described as being a race of people. They're described as being born that way. Brute beasts born to be taken and destroyed. So now in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, 
He explains the same thing in yet another way. For that same reason, I'm sorry. Sorry, Bill, could I say, so Paul and the apostles must have known the history of um, the, the, where the, where the mixing occurred, right? Where they began converting the, the Edomites. They must have wised up to that as well, even though they don't explicitly mention it. They must have known that um, Herod was an Edomite, for example, right? Of course they did, but they're giving us scripture, not history. So we have to, it's our obligation to go search out the history to see how their statements are true. And yes, they must have known the history because Josephus knew the history. He knew it very clearly. And Josephus was quoting from older history books, history books which existed before his time. But Peter and Jude were simple men. They were not scholars. They were not learned men. When they started out, Christ was not a learned man. That The Pharisees were constantly accusing him on the basis that he did not learn in their schools and wondered how he knew the scriptures so well because he was never learned. And Peter and John admitted themselves not being learned men in Acts chapter 5. They were only simple fishermen. Simple, they didn't have books in those days. Books were not common among the people. Books were very expensive, and, and they had to go to the synagogue, the local synagogue, which was controlled by the Pharisees and Sadducees in the temple. They controlled all the local synagogues as well. They controlled what the that they controlled the Levites who should have been off teaching in those synagogues. And ostensibly they would have controlled what these men were taught about history and scripture, which was already corrupted by that time. It was corrupted by Jeremiah's time as Jeremiah chapter 8 attests. There were already corruptions in the law. So what was taught would have been what would have been controlled by the authorities in the temple, just like today it's controlled. And when you read the, the um, interpretations of scripture given by Flavius Josephus in his early works, in the early chapters of antiquity, where he's talking about the events from Genesis through Malachi of the Old Testament, the interpretations are clearly the so-called leaven of the Pharisees, as there are all sorts of corrupt interpretations concerning the scripture that, that would disagree with the teachings of Christ and the apostles. But Josephus was not a Christian. He was only about, he was born, I think, in 37 AD, according to his own chronologies, or about five years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. So being a Judean in the Levitical family of the time that had not been converted to Christ, he would have been raised with all the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And Antiquities, his writing clearly exhibits that. However, in the later chapters, Josephus names his sources 
And he has inside information in the family of Herod because Josephus happened to be, even though he was a Levite, he was a general in the Judean army in Galilee. And being a learned man, he was also a friend, a personal friend of Herod Agrippa II, which is the Herod of Acts chapters 26, 27. When I Acts chapter 26, I believe, where Paul spoke before Herod and defended himself. That Herod was a personal friend of Flavius Josephus, and Josephus had inside knowledge, but he was also citing historians whom he mentioned that were a hundred years before his time, at least, to fill in the history of Judea from the time of the Roman conquest and even a little before that, from the time, it, it really gets detailed. Josephus's accounts really get detailed from the time of the Maccabees forward. But the book of Maccabees only goes down to the time of John Hyrcanus when he comes to the high priesthood about 129 B.C., that's when the book of Maccabees ends. And that's when they start converting Edomites into Judeans in the time of John Hyrcanus. But the book of Maccabees ends there and never gets into that. Josephus does get into it because he has access to better histories. Histories that are now lost. I wonder why. But for some reason, the Jews kept Josephus, and he tells on them. He tells it like it is and, and explains that history of how, in the days of John Hyrcanus and the later high priest, Alexander Janius, who ruled Judea for a long time, almost down to the time of the Roman conquest, which, was, which culminated about 63 B.C., I think Alexander Janius ruled from like, off the top of my head, give or take a couple of years, I think it was from like 104 BC, 105 BC down to 78 BC. Alexander Janius did the same things. He continued the same policy that John Hyrcanus had begun and at an even greater magnitude where he forced the Edomites and other people dwelling in at least 30 towns and their surrounding villages and areas in Judea, he forced them into Judaism. So he carried on John Hyrcanus's policy at a much greater level than John Hyrcanus had, had done converting the Edomites of Dora and Marisa. Marisa, Dora being the ancient seacoast city of Dor in the land of Manasseh, and Marisa being the ancient um, insular town of Marashah in the land of Judah in the Old Testament. So those places can be identified, right? And Edomites were dwelling there, and all of a sudden they were all Judeans. Okay, that's another digression. But... I hope that answers your question, that Josephus, that, that the apostles must have known of that history, but not related it 
as a historical narrative that they related it with with these um allusions to scripture yeah with um enoch and and what the prophet said right with yes. uh, clouds right. without water etc cetera, etc cetera. yes exactly so it's it, it's our obligation as Christians to determine what these things mean. And, and it's very clear that they're talking about these Edomite bastards that we know today's Jews. And I pray that becomes clearer as we proceed here in 1 John chapter 2 and get into chapter 3 in our next presentation. But we're not done here. We still got a ways to go. So for that same reason, that the adversaries of Christ were not his sheep, as Christ had said to them. John then explains to his readers in chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now that's cryptic language, but actually he's saying that these people came from Judea, but they were not true Israelites. For they, if they had been Israelites, they would have stayed with Christ and his apostles. They would have accepted Christ, but they went out. They didn't turn to Christ that they might be made manifest that they were not Israelites. It's the same thing Paul is explaining in Romans chapter 9. The same exact thing, that not all of those of Israel are of Israel, but we got these Israelite vessels of mercy here, and we got these Edomite vessels of destruction over there. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 9. It's so, uh, the Christ gospel dividing the wheat and the tares exactly, right? Absolutely. And the devil planted the tares. Esau was Esau's children. He was a race mixer. His wives were Canaanites. And they interbred with other Canaanites at Mount Hor. And the Ishmaelites mixed in with them too, with the Edomites and Canaanites. So Jacob was told explicitly that he would inherit the promises to Abraham if he went, Genesis chapter 29, and to his own homeland in Padanaram and married a woman of his own people. That's the difference between Jacob and Esau. That's the reason why explicitly Jacob received the promises that Esau didn't. Esau took over the land. The Edomites took over the land of Israel and Judah, at least most of it, because they never went into Jerusalem itself and rebuilt it. It was laying in ruins and, and they never really made it into Galilee in any large numbers, at least. So the Israelites were able to resettle there, but the Edomites took over most of Israel and Judah. The first mention of that after the Assyrian deportations is found in Ezekiel chapters 34 and 35. It's mentioned there explicitly in Ezekiel chapter 35. So we have witnesses in Ezekiel in the Old Testament that the Edomites took over the land of Israel and Judah. And when you just look at the maps as they were reckoned by the ancient Greeks, the land of Edomia, they considered to be 
what we know from the Bible as the southern portion of Israel and Judah, that the Greeks thought that was Edomia, the land of the Edomites. And when the Romans came, because the, the, the high priest at Jerusalem had already been converting Edomites to Judaism, when the Romans came and formed Judea into a kingdom and gave it over to the Edomite king Herod, whom Josephus even though, and this is the, the, the blindness of Josephus, even though four times Josephus explained that Herod was an Edomite, four times, he accepted the Edomites as Judeans fully. And he thought that the Herods were great people. He loved the family of Herod. He thought they were good for Judea. And, and he was a Levite. He, was, he himself was not an Edomite. He was not a Jew. He was a Levite. So Josephus was blinded to the race issue in the first century, ostensibly by the leaven of the Pharisees of his own time, because the Pharisees accepted that race mixing. And we'll explain that when we discuss the prophet Malachi and the corrupted priesthood next week, because that's another witness to everything we're saying here in Second John. Everything we said in Second Thessalonians of Paul and of Jude and Peter. So how many witnesses to this story do we need? We have five right there. Romans 9, 2 Thessalonians 2, Jude, Peter, John, and Malachi, that's six. Clear witnesses to the same phenomenon, even though it's not given in a historical narrative. So we throw in Ezekiel chapter 35, which is seven witnesses, and now we add the historical narrative presented by Flavius Josephus, and it's all sewed up. This is indisputably the truth. So John says in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. And the King James Version added a few words here. And not everything the King James Version has in italics is inappropriate. In this case, reading the original Greek text, because of course I have, it is manifest that the added words are appropriate. At least most of them are necessary to understand the sense of John's statement in English, right? The Apostle John was a Hebrew, an Israelite of Galilee in Judea. Citing the law and the prophets in the context of Christ having been a fulfillment of them in respect to the Messiah, which is something that was proper for the Israelites of Judea to believe. So where John says, us, he is speaking of us as he describes us in the general context of this epistle, referring to those Judeans who, like himself, had accepted Christ as the Messiah of Israel. John, and this is also explained in the epistles of Ignatius. In the epistles, I believe it's 
Now, now I'm doing this from memory, but I'm going to try to do a quick search at Christogenia to come up with this. I believe it's the Epistle of Ignatius, who was a second century Christian, to the church fathers. Uh, of, 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 he's one of the church fathers. The Epistle of Ignatius, I believe, to the Magnesians, perhaps, or to the... Christogeny is telling me there's something in the Epistle of Ignatius, Ignatius to the Trallians. So let me see how that works out. I'm, I'm going to try to look that up. Mm, it's not quite what I wanted, but I know this comes from Ignatius of Antioch. I believe it was the Epistle to the Magnesians where he said that, and, and in fact, I just found it. Ignatius professes that there are two races of people here who are not planted by God. And that is an important tenet of, of what we believe. In his epistle to the Magnesians, he proclaims that it is absurd to profess Christ Jesus and then to Judaize. For Christianity did not embrace Judaism, but Judaism, Christianity. Ignatius is saying that Judaism embraced Christianity. In other words, the Old Testament was seen as a Christian book by early Christians. And you had these people that were not of us who came out from us, as John explains in 1 John 2.19, and they couldn't continue with us because they were not of us. And they went out that it might be made manifest they were, they were not all of us. The Apostle John sees Judaism as the sect and the heresy. Christianity is not the sect and the heresy. The Jews try to convince Christians today that Christianity is the sect and the heresy. But no, the Old Testament is a Christian book, as Paul also explains in, um, I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It might be 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul also explains, yes, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul explains that you cannot accept the Old Testament until you come to Christ. You cannot understand the Old Testament, that there's a veil over it. And he likens that to the veil of Moses. You can't understand the Old Testament until you come to Christ. So we have these Jews that are the heretical sect as John explains, and as Ignatius explained. Ignatius says in his epistle to the Trallians in chapter 9, these men are not the planting of the Father, but are an accursed brood. And says the Lord, let every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted be rooted up. For if they had been branches of the Father, they would not have been the enemies of the cross of Christ. Same thing John's saying was said by Ignatius, the second century pre-Roman Catholic church father. One of the church fathers that the Catholic church ignores. But those, rather, those who killed the Lord of glory. 
if they had been branches of the Father, they would not have been enemies of the Christ, but rather of those who killed the Lord of glory. But now, by denying the cross and being ashamed of the passion, they cover the transgression of the Jews, those fighters against God, those murderers of the Lord. So, so there you have it. it. It's that they're not a plant which the Heavenly Father planted. They're enemies of God. They're not the planting of the Father. They're an accursed brood. Ignatius is saying the same thing that Jude and Peter said in different language, using different words. And I don't know if I would agree with everything that Ignatius taught, because we see that there were early diversions from the, the doctrines of Christ in the first and second centuries, but he was pretty much on the money in those statements, in those two epistles that I, I would have to fully agree because that's what the apostles are clearly teaching here. So, I'm sorry. You might uh, have So something. you think this was Jews going around trying to say that Judaism was the original religion and he's sending epistles to dispute that evidently, right? Ignatius was disputing that, but the apostle John is disputing it here in very plain, simple language, but he's disputing it here, that they were not of us, and if they had been with us, they would have, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. In other words, John seeing the Old Testament, the New Testament, as a continuation of the Old Testament, and it is, because the Old Testament, from Moses all the way to Malachi, which is the, the last book of what we know is the Old Testament, prophecy Christ and his reconciliation with and only with the children of Israel, where you had these Edomites who were not Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh. Well, Paul could not say that of any Israelite, that they were not his kinsmen according to the flesh, because all Israelites are the kinsmen of each other, of one another, according to the flesh. If Christianity was for everybody and anybody who believed, if anybody could be a brother merely by believing, why would Paul even care of anybody being a kinsman according to the flesh? Shame on Paul, the attitude of the denominational Christians of today would think, shame on Paul. So Paul's wrong and denominational Christians today are right? Or Paul's wrong and the Roman Catholic Church is right? No. Paul's right and the world is wrong. And we should follow Paul because Paul followed Christ in that same thing. I come but unto, which means only for, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The house, which means a family. This is all um, rather parochial, elementary scripture to us, but these mainstream churches can't get it. No matter how the apostles try to explain it to them, they don't want to get it. It's a hard message. It means that you have to make enemies of the world. Well, Christians are told to come out from the world. They're demanded to come out from the world. A friend of the world, as James said, is the enemy of God. So who do we choose? Do we choose to obey God or men? 
Well, the apostle said, Peter and Peter and John said, and Jude was probably there, although he's not recorded as having been there, that we ought to please God and not men. For most men, that's a step too far, right? Absolutely. They have to give up their football. What, which for you means something that it, different than it does to me, but it's the same effect, nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, uh, soccer, I guess you call it. We yeah. call your football American football. But, but in any event, it's the same basic thing, right? I mean, a, a, a professional sports team loaded up with people of other races that should not, that are spots in, in our Feast of Charity. Well, there's spots on our fields of sport, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, it's especially funny. Um, you guys don't have it at all, but we have the World Cup where it's meant to be every country playing soccer and it's meant to only be people of that nationality. And, and all you see is like Arabs and niggers on, on every team, right? Like Germany, Italy, Spain, England, yeah, Sweden. It's, it's just it's just ridiculous. Absolutely. It's incredible. It, it's um, that they're attempting to replace us, that these devils are attempting to replace us with beasts, that these evil beasts born to be taken and destroyed that are spots in our feast of charity. We should really consider that, reading Peter and Jude, that that's exactly what they meant, and that's exactly who they were referring to. So while speaking about us here, John is speaking about Judeans like himself who had accepted Christ, Judeans who were Israelites like himself, that had accepted Christ as the Messiah and King of Israel. On the other hand, when John speaks of they here, they went out from us, they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Where he speaks of they here, he must be speaking of the Edomite Judeans, the not my sheep of John chapter 10, whom Paul was not praying for, as he was only praying for his own brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, as he had described them in Romans chapter 9. Proceeding from there to contrast those of Jacob as vessels of mercy and those of Esau as vessels of destruction. Paul's answer to they are not all Israel who are of Israel is to explain and contrast Jacob and Esau. So Paul is telling us in, and, and telling us that the promise is only to Jacob and not to Esau. So Paul is telling us that these vessels of destruction, those who rejected Christ, are Edomites. And those who accepted Christ represent these vessels of mercy of Jacob. But he's praying for his kinsmen according to the flesh that had not yet heard the gospel of Christ. The Jews themselves, the Edomite Jews, were preventing men from hearing it. As Christ told them, woe to ye scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, woe to ye lawyers, for you bar the door of heaven. 
you don't enter into it yourselves and you prevent those who are entering into it from entering into it. And they're still doing that. They can't enter the kingdom of heaven themselves. And they're still doing everything they can to prevent men who are going to enter into it from doing so. In the end, they're not going to prevent it. Yeah, I got um, a lot of angry comments on YouTube, and I, and I can see how it triggers them that the moment they see Israelites were white, that they go berserk and they leave such angry comments, like not just Jews, but niggers, Arabs, chinks. They they just hate that, it, it you know, thinking that whites are the chosen people. And, and they really don't want that to be known, even if they're not doing what, um, you know, kikes do. They, it's, they still just hate it. They naturally hate us being the chosen people. Absolutely. There's nothing they hate worse. I mean, they just want to see us as evil. And, and yet, you know what? When you're a bastard, as, and I often cite this, that this passage from the tragic poets, not from scripture, but from the tragic poets, because the ancient Greeks understood, and we don't understand, but the ancient Greeks surely did understand as I believe it was a Aeschylus, the tragic poet, put into the mouth of one of his characters in one of his plays, a bastard is forever the enemy to the trueborn. Speaking of sons, that the bastard son was always, forever, going to be an enemy to the trueborn son. And thus we have the story of Esau and Jacob. Not that Esau himself was a bastard, but that all his progeny, all of his offspring are bastards. And Jacob was the true-born son. Jacob's children were true-born because Jacob married women of his own kin, as he was told to by his father Isaac. So his sons are the true-born sons, and the Edomites have always wanted to kill them which is why they killed Christ, the Messiah of Israel, because they were afraid that they were going to lose the kingdom that they had infiltrated and taken over. Just like Herod had killed all of the, all of his own in-laws. At first he married the, a daughter of a Hasmonean priest, and then he killed the children that he had with her, and not only did he kill his own sons with her, he killed her ultimately. And he killed all her family, all her kinfolk. He wiped them out. He wiped out the Hasmoneans so that nobody could challenge him for the position of king as he had bribed the Romans to have him made the king. So we see these manifestations of this natural hatred of these bastards for the true-born sons. And the Jews have posed as Israelites ever since the first century because they are trying to hold on to that kingdom that they infiltrated and took over. And they're still trying to hold on to it today, thinking that that gives them, their being perceived as the chosen, gives them the ability and the right to rule the world. So they nurture hatred in all the other races 
hatred towards us as they manipulate politics through the power of, of their control of banking and open the floodgates of all the white nations for the other races that hate us, that they have taught to hate us. And they teach us in universities and schools today to hate ourselves. So there are white people out there that hate the fact that they're white people. They want to be niggers. The, 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 the digressions could be endless here, right? <laughs> they're digressions, but that, that it's, there's no end to them. It, this all ties into this single phenomenon. Who are the true people of God? And of course, we have at least 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. But even white people don't want to hear this. So contrasting his readers to these men who were not of us, John says in the very next verse, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, but you have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. Not that they know all things, but they're, they're being taught all things in Christ. So they know all the things necessary for them to know. That word unction is charisma, a noun, which is an anointing. It is the noun form of the adjective, Christos, which primarily means anointed, but which, when it is used as a substantive, as a noun, is translated as Christ because it means the anointed one or the anointed. So the people of whom he writes, the people to whom he writes, having an anointing must have been anointed. And that supports our contention that on many occasions, the term Christos was used collectively of the children of Israel in general where we have discussed the context of many such passages in the New Testament, rather than being exclusively used of Christ alone. So, Christos sometimes means the people collectively, and John supports that here by telling his readers that you have an anointing. So, skipping ahead of verse, John describes the Antichrist in another way, but we must not forget that he has disowned these people, not merely because they did not believe, but because they were not of his own people in the first place. They were not of us. Their disbelief proved that they were not of us, but they were not of us in the first place. That's what John's saying here. So, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, who is a liar, but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, the same has not the Father. Now, this is where verse 23 should end. The phrase added in italics in the King James Version, where it says, but... He that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. That phrase is not in the original Greek manuscripts. It is not in the original Greek at all. And it is not necessarily true. The whole thing's in italics. That means it isn't even in the late manuscripts that the King James employed. 
So we have already invoked the warning of Christ from Matthew chapter 7, that there would be men who claim to do magnificent things in his name, to whom he shall say, I never knew you, depart from me. So it cannot be said that he acknowledges the Son has the Father also. That is not true. But those who in John's time were denying the fact that Yahshua Christ is the Messiah, they are the Antichrists of whom John speaks. In the context of John's time, this would only make sense when spoken in reference to men who were acquainted with Scripture, who knew that the prophets spoke of a Messiah, a Savior of Israel, a son prophesied to rule over Israel forever. The Messiah, the Christ, is all of those things in order to fulfill the prophets. Christ was declared to be the fulfillment of all these things which were prophesied in Daniel, in the Psalms, in Isaiah, and even in the books of Moses and the books of the other prophets in diverse ways. Those who could have been aware of these things, but who denied them, are Jews and the father of the Jews of today. John could not have been speaking of anyone else, and especially of pagans who had no inkling of these things. The pagans didn't know the Hebrew scriptures. They couldn't make a, a determination for themselves, and they would have had to first learn them in order to ever deny them. They hardly had such an opportunity by the time in which John had written here. Even Nero, Pliny, Tacitus, and others who saw Christ as an affront to Rome had no proper opportunity to learn beforehand the significance of these things in order to make an educated decision. So John must have been talking about Jews and no one else. I've seen people actually try to defend Jews here. Oh, John wasn't talking about Jews. Oh, yes, he must have been. He couldn't have been speaking about anyone else. Yeah, and generally uh, white people, pagans, or, or anyone, atheist or, or humanist, whatever, who go against Christ, they have no interest in bothering to learn it and try and infiltrate and destroy, right? They just want to live their lives. It's, it's only th these Edomite Jews who will go through all the trouble of doing that in order to destroy Christianity from within. Absolutely. The Romans only, only cared about Christians and persecuted Christians because of all the trouble that the Jews were making with Christians and blaming on the Christians. And the Jews had, had convinced Nero, and they convinced Claudius, and, and these other rulers, that these lesser governors and, and throughout the Roman Empire, that it was the Christians who were agitating problems, but it wasn't. It was the Jews agitating against Christians, and the Jews were thereby um, responsible or culpable, I should say, for all of the Roman persecutions of Christians. The pagans themselves wouldn't really have cared about Christians. 
if the Jews didn't consistently make accusations against the Christians. Just as we've seen in, in the gospel, where the Jews themselves had proclaimed to before Pilate that we have no king but Caesar. So the Jews were hypocrites because if they really believed that Old Testament, they would have realized that only Yahweh, God, is the king of Israel. And if they're uh, in Rome, why would they care about Christianity, right? Why would they so adamantly want it gone unless it was, it was triggering them? Well, that's exactly what we see in the testimony of Luke writing the book of Acts when Paul spoke to the people in Jerusalem and he tried to defend his position in the gospel and he told them that Christ would send him to these far off lands to preach the gospel. At that point, it was that they wanted to kill him. For that reason, they wanted to kill him. Now, if he was really vexing them, if, if he was really doing them harm or wrong, they should have been happy that he was going to fall off, far off different lands. Here, here's your plane ticket. Stay there. Just stay there. Leave us alone. Stay there. No, they wanted to kill him for it. So as we have seen, as we have seen in, in um, Matthew chapter 7, where Christ said, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, get away from me, I never knew you. And we've seen in Jude and in 2 Peter chapter 2, those who preach Christ out of deception, claiming to accept him, but not loving his children or keeping his commandments, they will be ultimately exposed. So John continues with another warning. Let that therefore abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. <clears throat> if that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you shall also continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he has promised us, even eternal life. So those spots in our feasts of charity might profess to be Christians, but what they heard from the beginning, what when whenever they converted to Christ, if they read the gospel that said, keep my commandments, they can't do it. And if they can't do it, that's proof that they cannot be Christians. That's proof that they will never remain in the Son and the Son in them. Peter for the same reason, explained that the interlopers joining themselves to Christians at their feasts are spots and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, having hearts they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. In other words, these people have no chance of ever seeing God. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. In other words, they take Christians who have escaped the world 
and then these infiltrators come into these Christian churches and with their false doctrines, they allure those Christians back into the lust of the flesh. Those who claim to love Christ but do not keep his commandments, those who claim to have God but do not love their brethren, may very well do so because they too are the children of these same bastards, false brethren, crept in unawares. This is all describing a race of people who have the Spirit of God and can keep the commandments compared to a race of people who don't have the Spirit of God. And even if they profess God, they just can't keep those commandments. When we get further on in John, we will see that love for one's brother is expressed by keeping the commandments of Christ. That's how we express our love for our brethren. We don't steal from them. We don't kill them. But we don't corrupt his children with immoral sexual practices. We don't covet his wife. We don't covet his property. So we, we respect the sanctification of our brother's marriage, and we don't look to steal his property or tax it away from him or however we plan on stealing it. And Jews do the exact opposite. When they enter a community or area, they're, they're straight away set up a charity or, or something to funnel and, and steal the money out of them and the wealth, right? Absolutely. Absolutely, they, they right. They they form banks. They they infiltrate into society through their banks and 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 other devices. Once they infiltrate into society, the taxes go up. Where you have the highest in the United States, where you have the most Jews, you usually have the highest taxes. And we have the most the the greatest concentration of Jews in New York, New Jersey, Illinois. When you actually look at the tax rates in those states, they are many times higher than Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, many times higher. In fact, in New York, my own property taxes were five times higher than they are in Florida for a house of less value than our home in Florida. So imagine that. Paul wrote of two sorts of these same wicked men. The first sort had persecuted Christians openly and never tried to infiltrate and subvert them. Of these, he said, and we will offer our own translation because the manuscript upon which the King James Version is based, has an inappropriate interpolation. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul wrote, commending the Thessalonians, you have become imitators, brethren, of the assemblies of Yahweh in Judea, which are among the number of Christ Yahshua, because the same things you have suffered by your own tribesmen, likewise they also by the Judeans. Those who both killed Prince Yahshua, or Lord Yahshua, if you will, and the prophets, and banished us, and are not pleasing to Yahweh. 
and contrary to all men. Preventing us, go back to Luke chapter 20 or 21, 21, I believe that I had just cited that story where Paul was speaking to the people in Jerusalem and they wanted to kill him because he wanted to take the gospel of Christ to far-off nations. They wanted to kill him. Well, this passage, this letter to the Thessalonians, is written long before that. This is at, at least eight years before, or at least seven years before, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. We know when the letters to the Thessalonians were written, as I had explained earlier earlier this evening, preventing us, they're contrary to all men, preventing us from speaking to the nations that they would be preserved, meaning the nations of scattered Israel, for which to fill their errors at all times, but the wrath has come upon them at last. Paul was foreseeing the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9 and the destruction of Jerusalem. He foresaw it here, and he foresaw it seven years later when he wrote his epistle to the Romans, which it can pretty much be established was written in 58 AD from the Troad, shortly before Paul actually traveled to Jerusalem where he was arrested. So that's the first sort of these wicked men that Paul described those who were simply persecuting Christians. The second sort began to infiltrate Christian assemblies in order to subvert them, as Jude and Peter had described. Of that sort, Paul had written in Galatians chapter 2, from verse 4, and that, because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection? No, not for an hour or a minute in English, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So we must note that Galatians was written by our estimation about five years after First Thessalonians. So by then, perhaps Paul had greater experience, and evidently, so did the Jews who were attacking Christianity. They had stopped only, they had not only been confronting it openly, but they had also been subverting it by that time by infiltrating into it. So, <clears throat> now, as we saw in the epistles of Peter and Jude, and which is also evident in diverse places in the epistles of Paul, John speaks in a different way of men who are false brethren crept in unawares and denies them the anointing which belongs to the, to the children of Israel by contrasting them to those who do not have that anointing. In verse 26, he's explaining why they came out from us, but they were not of us, blah, blah, blah. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. The false brethren brought in unawares who, as Paul had, as we had just seen that Paul attested, 
came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Those that seduce you, John says, speaking of those who are not of us, but they had come out from us, but they were not of us in the first place. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which you have received of him, meaning of Christ, abides in you. And you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things and is truth and is no lie, and even as it is taught you, you shall abide in him. So where, where John refers to them that seduce you, it is further revealed that he is indeed speaking of the very same race of men which Peter had described as false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, and which Jude had described as certain men crept in unawares, who were brought before who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, and which Paul had described as false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. They were not Israelites, or it would have, or it would have been possible that they could have been corrected, and they could not have been described as false brethren. As Paul defined brethren as kinsmen according to the flesh, and as Jude had associated these men with fallen angels who had committed fornication in their pursuit of different flesh. So all of this is a is an absolutely consistent narrative within the scripture describing two different races of men, the redeemed and the irredeemable, the convertible and the inconvertible, <laughs> the people of God and the adversary, or Satan, sitting in that temple. So now John makes an appeal once again, and there is a word which the King James Version correctly translates as born here, geneo, which Liddell and Scott explain is a causal form of the verb ginomahi, which in turn, in reference to people, we insist should be translated as born earlier in this chapter in verse 18. So in any event, we also insisted that geneo be translated as born in 2 Peter chapter 12, I'm, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 12, where in reference to evil beasts made to be taken and destroyed, the King James Version should also have translated it as born as they have here, rather than as made. So, so it shows they were, they were never consistent that they would always look at how the verse would end up and then they'd think, oh, I don't really like that. <laughs> Let's get rid of born. Exactly. They should have translated this as born in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, in reference to people. And they didn't. They made it made. 
And you're right. They did it for, it, it's absolutely clear to me that they did it solely for political purposes. So here in 1 John 2, in verse 29, they translate the same word as born. They translate it correctly here. And they purposely obscured its meaning in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. So, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, and I said before that he uses little children as an affectionate term for everybody in the congregation, no matter their age, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him, that word geneo, not made of him, but born of him. Christ defined who is born of God in John chapter 3, where he said, except a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, as we have already discussed, the King James Version also mistranslated that passage. They took a word, anothen, which means from above, and they wrongly translated it as again. The word never means again. So, there's, a, there's another explicit Greek word which does mean again, and that is palin. Again, in John chapter 8, Christ told his adversaries, Ye are from beneath. I am from above. Ye are of this world. I am not of this world. And when we continue with this epistle of John, in our next presentation, we will continue to discuss this concept as John himself elaborates upon it in the opening verses of his next chapter, in chapter 3. So with that, that's all I have to say this evening. And, of course, you may add whatever you think is fitting. Just uh, um, Adamites are from above, and all these bastards are from beneath, right? Well, well, absolutely. Adam is the son of God. And all the others are, indeed, of this world, because they were born in sin. They were born in sin. They were born in the original rebellion of those fallen angels, those Nephilim or fallen ones. And you cannot attribute, even if God knows that you're going to sin, because he can't help knowing ahead of time, because he's God. You can't blame him for your sins. You can't blame them on God. At the point where you are going to sin, when you make that choice, even though God knew what choice you were going to make, you are agreeing to that sin because you're making it. So it's your fault that you committed the sin and nobody else's. You cannot blame sin on God. Your sin does not come from God. He didn't make you do it just because he knew ahead of time that you did it. That This is a dispute that has to do with the concept of free will, what, which is, for many people, very difficult to understand. 
But for that reason, that you agree to that sin and you choose to take that route of your own volition, even though God knew you were going to do it, you can't blame it on him. So bastards are born from sin. They are the result of sin and their very existence is a sin. That didn't come from above. That came from your sin. That came from beneath, as Christ explains it. So with that, I believe that we've probably, I, I expected this to be a short program. I honestly did. And it turned into two and a half hours. <laughs> Just about. It'll yep. be about two hours and 15 minutes, I think. Thank you. Yep. No problem. And, and then next week, we'll uh, finish off this bit on John, right? Well, I pray, but I can't guarantee. It's obvious I can't guarantee they were going to finish it because I couldn't even do this in the time I thought that we were going to spend. <laughs> we're going to try to finish it. That's my objective. Okay. All right. Well, well brilliant. Thank, thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thank you. Praise Yahweh.